the old world was gone. As the torrents of rain continued to fall, less and less remained. Trees had been uprooted and towns washed away. Every living thing had been engulfed and subsequently buried under walls of water. Only a single family remained. Buoyed upon the surface of the deep by a sturdy vessel, the last of Earth's life clung to existence through their faith in God. After a great number of days, the rain ceased and the waters receded. Noah and his family breached the ark's sealed door and walked into a new world. At that moment, only eight people populated the planet. Soon they would need to spread in different directions and start the arduous process of repopulating the earth. But which direction would each of Noah's three sons take? One ancient source gives us an answer. And the lot of Shem was assigned in the document as the middle of the earth, which he would take for his possession and for his sons for eternal generations. And it goes on toward the east until it draws near to the Garden of Eden towards its south, to the south and east of all the land of Eden, and to all of the east. And Noah rejoiced because this portion was assigned to Shem and for his sons. And he remembered everything which he spoke with his mouth concerning him, because he said, May the Lord God of Shem be blessed, and may the Lord dwell in the place of Shem. And he knew that the Garden of Eden was the Holy of Holies and the dwelling of the Lord. The Book of Jubilees, Chapter 8 Welcome, truth seekers, Bible enthusiasts, and amateur historians from all across the globe. Co-host Brad Horton here, and we're again delighted to be joined by Dr. Eric Armstrong, our other co-host. Good to be here. <laughs> so if you joined us for episode one, you remember how we discussed Christopher Columbus and his quest for Eden, as well as Juan Ponce de Leon, the Spanish conquistador that named the state of Florida. And we noted how throughout history, mankind has been searching for Eden, this pristine garden where mankind fellowshiped with God uninterrupted. So we talked about the climate of Eden, that it was perfect. We talked about the vegetation, that it was numerous and lively, that Adam and Eve were basically given every seed-bearing plant to eat. And, you know, for all you kids out there listening, I don't think it was just fruits and veggies like we think of today. It was, it was delightful. It was, it was great. And they cultivated this food. We also talked about the diversity of animal life, how Adam and Eve, they were almost certainly way above our intelligence level before corruption and sin entered the world. And, you know, I just, I, I have to pause and think about the imagination it must have taken for Adam to name every animal that God brought to him. And we talked about that last time. And I mean, I couldn't, I certainly couldn't do that. I mean, that's, that's just totally amazing. And, you know, another big thing we see, and we talked about in Genesis chapter two, we see a new name for God, the Lord God or Yahweh, which describes God's immediacy, his closeness after having transitioned from the name Elohim in chapter one, uh, the creation account, which describes God's power and God's majesty. So we see a new facet of God's character revealed in Genesis chapter 2. Then we talked about why Adam and Eve left the garden. And as, as Pastor Eric mentioned, they didn't leave by choice. And some of the changes they experienced were immediate, some eternal. And, you know, we also discussed extra biblical evidence for the existence of Eden, and we found that there's a wealth of it. And that's kind of where we left off with this exit from the garden, but a longing to return. 
And, and since then, the search for Eden has consumed the minds of many, uh, piqued the curiosity of, of multitudes. And it leads us to the question, is it still around? Can it be located today? And we probably need to go ahead and get this out of the way first, because many modern creationists will give no credence uh, to finding the Garden of Eden. They, they outright say God destroyed it. They claim the flood washed it away forever, transformed the surface of the earth so greatly that it no longer exists. And I'll be honest, I, I kind of think that's just the easy way out. Uh, as much as biblical scholars and, and teachers can marvel at God's miraculous works in history, they seem to lose their sense of wonder and possibility when it comes to subjects like this. Uh, our world is filled with wonder. Our world is where God has chosen to work so why not dwell in possibility? Why not explore and search out and, and seek? But maybe I'm wrong, Brad. Are we, are we engaged in a futile pursuit? Pastor, I don't think so. And certainly, you know, it could have been destroyed, but we don't have a definitive answer there in, in the Bible. And, you know, was it preserved? Quite possibly. And I would argue that God has a track record of preserving things. The book of Revelation mentions that the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven, right? Um, or there's a reference to it at least. And, you know, we we know on the, the judgment side of things, God has preserved certain uh, angels that rebelled against him for his wrath. They're kept in a special place. He's preserving them there for that time. And look at one major thing God has preserved, and that's his chosen people, hmm. the nation of Israel. Think about this. God calls Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees. And, you know, they, they come, they sojourn over to Canaan. The people grow in number. They're enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh tries to wipe them off the face of the earth. God preserves them, right? And then they wander through the wilderness for 40 years. That must not have been an easy way to survive, but God preserves them. Then he takes them into the land of Canaan. And they thrive for a little while. Then they ultimately, you know, they're sacked twice by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The nation is in shambles, but God preserves his people. And then they go back, right? And then the nation gets sacked by Rome and ceases to exist, but not the people until 1948. Then God has brought his people right back. They've got their nation and that heritage has been preserved. So God can certainly preserve people, places, things. I guess the question is we should ask is, why not? Why can God not preserve the Garden of Eden? It's a good question, and, and as a matter of fact, our God is a God of victory. Our God is a God uh, where the ending uh, glorifies his name. And, and I don't think that we're the only ones uh, to think that Eden may still be on the surface of the earth. And in fact, a lot of theologians and scholars of the past considered that the Garden of Eden still exists. They, they concluded that it still exists somewhere on the surface of the earth, just kind of tucked away and, and hidden. Isidore of Seville, writing in the 7th century, penned these words. He said, Asia includes many provinces and regions whose names and locations I shall list briefly, beginning with paradise. Paradise is a place in the east, a Greek name which means garden in Latin, in Hebrew it is called Eden, Ever since man's sin, access to this place has been barred to humanity. In other words, it's still here on earth, even though it's locked away. And the, the great reformer, John Calvin, also had a few words to add on Eden. He said, For although I acknowledge that the earth, from the time that it was accursed, became reduced from its native beauty to a state of wretched defilement and to a garb of mourning, and afterwards was further laid waste in many places by the deluge, still I assert it was the same earth which had been created in the beginning. In other words, you could still locate Eden. And a lot of ancient medieval Reformation saints thought it is still here, either high up or maybe beyond a great inaccessible ocean or tucked away in the east, but they thought it had survived, and, and there's a lot of ancient sources that that think this as well. Our opening uh, quoted from the book of Jubilees, and it talked about Noah dividing the earth among his sons. 
And in that division, Eden is mentioned, still present, still standing. Now, we know this is not a biblical book. It's, it's really an ancient book, probably penned a few centuries before Christ, but also seemingly using a lot of older sources to compose it. So could it be that some true history is recounted in its pages? Perhaps, with one of those being the persistence of Eden on earth. And, and that really brings us, I think, to our reason to hope for its present existence, and that's Moses' use of geography. Absolutely. You know, and so one thing to think about here is, again, going back, this is not poetry that Moses is writing. This is a narrative. This is an account of the geography that he is describing here. You know, I think lost on this, there's, you know, there's this argument out there that Moses is describing this place that no longer exists, that was destroyed by the deluge, if you will. Because remember, if you listen to our first episode, Moses is basically writing the book of Genesis sometime during the Exodus, right? So these events have happened. The patriarchs have already lived. The people of Israel have already been enslaved and let go. God is, has taken them out of Egypt. So Moses is writing during this time when they're sojourning during in the wilderness. This is probably sometime between 1400 and 1500 BC, right? Absolutely. But you look at the way Moses is writing here, he's not talking in the past tense. He's describing landmarks that his audience would have been familiar with. You know, so notice in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, he does say a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there was separated into four headwaters. Obviously, that is the past tense. And, you know, there's different variations, different how many translations of the Bible are there now. There's, there's a lot. But, but, yeah, you can make the case for that. But then we see when he starts describing these four rivers, we see that the name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Then he describes the, the gold there. Well, he says the, the gold is good, right? And, you know, what does that mean that the gold is good? You know, maybe something that it's, that it's pure, right? If, you know, if you want some gold today, you want something that's almost all gold, not corrupted. So he, he's talking about this, this river that exists in his time. You know, even if the garden had been completely gone or removed by the time of the writing of Genesis, these landmarks are not. I don't think, I just don't think we can make the case that he's writing about these landmarks that no longer exist because think about how the people reacted toward Moses. They were angry with him. You, you brought us out of Egypt where at least we had food. We were slaves. They, they wanted to stone him half the time. And if he's writing falsehoods, I think they'd be looking for every, every chest they could to get rid of him. And, you know, you can make the case we wouldn't have the book of Genesis today if he's describing it as this world that no longer exists, but that's not what we see. Now, some people may may say, Brad, but but aren't they just renaming places from names they remember before the flood? It, you know, you can certainly make that case. I mean, we see that today. Like, you know, that's something people do. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Where where's the original Philadelphia? You know, I mean, it's over and and Turkey or modern day Turkey when yep. Paul it's one of the the cities in the the book of Revelation uh, along uh the the very first part of that New York where was the original York right uh there's certainly a habit of that of people doing that but I don't think that's the case here and again I I say that because Moses is speaking and describing these landmarks in the present tense and it's not that right here in the book of Genesis, that's not the only reference to the land of Havilah. Um, we see Genesis 25, chapter 18 also mentions it. Samuel, chapter 15, verses 7 through 8. Saul smote the Amalekites who were living in Havilah. And so, you know, that's written centuries after Moses, right? And, you know, if you're talking about this world that no longer exists, the authors of the Bible certainly thought it thought it did. So then you get into to Genesis chapter 2 verse 13, the land of the second or the the second is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. And there's there's certainly all kinds of theories with Cush. Ethiopia was it Ethiopia, you know, elsewhere in the Bible, numerous places Cush is associated with Ethiopia. I don't know that you know geographically that makes sense 
for you know at least being the same description here because it is so far south of what it seems that the Bible is talking about. You know, the Ethiopians have believed that the, I believe it's pronounced the Abay River or the Blue Nile is the Gihon. And it actually did encircle the former kingdom of Gojum. But, you know, again, geographically, I'd argue this probably does not make sense. But another interesting theory here with the land of Cush is it's also identified as the ancient Kassite kingdom, a former kingdom in Mesopotamia. You know, and some ancient historians would support this as they believe there were two Cushes, the one associated with Ethiopia and then the one associated with Mesopotamia. But again, very interesting. And, and I think we can conclude that, you know, Moses is speaking in the present tense. Certainly the Tigris, the Euphrates, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about them, but, you know, he talks about they are. Um, and assuming these are the same rivers and not just haven't been renamed, you know, I think that he's speaking when he's describing Eden, he is speaking about a land, a region, a city-state, if you will, that his audience would have been familiar with. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right on that point. It's it's the combination, I think, of the rivers with these other descriptors. So in other words, you're putting multiple locations together to describe a place. And the more markers that you have can let us know what age it takes place in. For for instance, if I mention the, the city of Paris, uh, our minds might go to France, uh, but there is a Paris that is in the borders of Texas. And so if I mention Texas, then mention Paris, you're going to know exactly where I'm talking about. The more, more descriptors that you can put together, the clearer the geography is. And that's exactly what Moses does, describing his own day and age. And I think that the, the nail in the coffin for those that argue that he is talking about a land long past is the combination here of the Tigris River with Assyria. And in essence, he says that the Tigris River runs on the eastern side of Assyria. But the translation here is actually Asher, which could refer to the Assyrian Empire that rose up. But the Assyrian Empire did not exist in Moses' day. And when it did exist with the capitals of Nineveh um, and other capitals after the days of Moses, it existed on the west, on the eastern side of the Tigris, not on the western side. But what did exist in Moses' day was the city of Asher. And this was the capital of the Assyrians up until about 1,350 maybe BC, just given an approximation here, meaning that as Moses wrote this, most likely in the 1400s, saying that the river ran east of Asher, he's describing the city that existed in his day and the river that ran beside it. In essence, he's combining two descriptors that, that accurately describe his own day, and he uses these descriptors to point back to the Garden of Eden. Excellent point. We've gotten so focused on this and that that we're ignoring the text that's just right before us. And, you know, reading it as we should at face value, <laughs> he's talking in the present tense about descriptors, locations that his audience would know. It, it, it really does become, you know, quite clear. And so with, with all due respect to those that just dismiss the possibility of the garden existing out of hand, if you, if you dwell in possibility, if you seek out and you search... Here it seems that after the flood, the region of Eden and the garden still existed. And that brings us to the question then of where is it? Well, after a lot of research, we've narrowed it down. Four possible locations for the Garden of Eden. So we're going to put forward each one, uh, maybe with a little bit of its pluses and minuses, and uh, you can draw your own conclusion. But Brad, uh, why don't you share with us uh, one of the first possible locations? Certainly, uh, Pastor Eric. Thank you. And one of these is very interesting, and that centers around the location of the Garden of Eden being located in the Promised Land, Israel, Jerusalem more specifically. And this is actually a Jewish tradition that has passed along through the years that centers around Mount Moriah, which is known as the Temple Mount today. We touched on this a bit in episode one. If you remember, Dr. Magnus prescribes to this theory. And if you recall, while she's not a believer, she traced Adam's tomb back to the bedrock underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which isn't technically on Mount Moriah per se, but 
you know, it's it's this area, this this idea of Jerusalem being the location. Now, in terms of Mount Moriah, this is in, in Jewish tradition. This is believed to be in this tradition. This specific tradition is believed to be the place where God created Adam, where God breathed the breath of life into Adam. Also, it's the uh, one of the traditional locations um, of where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Also, the site that David selected for the Jewish temple. And if you recall, God did not allow David to build the temple. That duty passed to his son Solomon. But it was this location on Mount Moriah. It was later the place where Herod reconstructed the Jewish temple. And so, you know, some have even gone so far as to tie this location to Christ's crucifixion. You know, being that Mount Moriah and the traditional side of Calvary are maybe part of the same outcropping, if you will. Now, the side of Calvary today where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre stands is about a fourth of a mile to half a mile from the Temple Mount. So that could be a bit of a stretch. But going in line with Dr. Magnus's theory... Um, believing this to be the burial place of Adam to be in the bowels of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So, Sepulchre, excuse me. So, anyway, it's an interesting theory. Now, also in line with this theory, you know, you've still got the geography of that Moses describes the four rivers that you gotta, you've got to deal with. One of them being the Gihon flows around the entire land of Cush. And you remember some biblical texts refer to the land of Nubia, south of Egypt, Ethiopia, identifying this with uh, with Cush. But more strongly associated with this theory is the theory of the Gihon River. Now, you know, we're, we're really making a stretch here, but if you remember in the book of Habakkuk, the Gihon Spring uh, was a very important water source for Jerusalem. Now, it's uh, in my opinion, my opinion, it's a bit of a stretch to take this spring and try and place it with the Gihon River. But anyway, this is a very interesting theory. And just with with God's whole plan for the nation of Israel, it would be wonderful. You know, I, I mean, it'd be great to for this to be the site of Eden. You know, it really would, but I think we've got a lot of problems with it. It does, although it's it's interesting to me, just because in Scripture sometimes you can find God connecting things together. God called the Israelites out of Egypt, and they were to be his people to represent him to the world, right? To be able to shine a light to the world, which they failed at. And yet, if you turn to the book of Matthew, uh, you find that Christ, after his birth, had to flee to Egypt because of, of Herod's wrath. And then Matthew quotes back to, out of Egypt, I have called my son. So where Israel failed to be a representative and a light, Christ was the true Israel that did that. And and so you yet have two events connected, though. And a lot of times in Scripture, you can see sometimes these these connections that are that are made. And so it's interesting to think that perhaps in the very place where we lost paradise, that Christ would restore it. It is an inter- it's an interesting theory. Theory I can I can see why some people would subscribe to it. It is very interesting, and you know where Adam failed us as our representative before God. To add to what you said, Christ came in and he he did it where Adam failed us. Right? Um, he's our second Adam. He serves as our representative before God. Now there are some problems with this. Um, first, I'm not a geologist. I actually took a geology class um, when I was in college, and I you know I somehow made a B, but I just, I just couldn't get it. You know, I, I mean, it just, I mean, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, but anyway, you know, I, I would say it's a bit of a stretch to say that the location of the church of the Holy Sepulcher, where Christ was crucified, fourth of a mile to half of a mile away from the temple complex, there's the same peak in Mount Moriah. Could be an outcropping or something like that, but it just, that, that just, it's, I think that's a bit of a stretch. With Dr. Magnus's theory as well, although not a believer, and, you know, it contradicts the accounts in Scripture. If this were the burial place of Adam, think about this. God drives Adam out of Eden, out of his presence. And then, you know, he, he brings him 
back to bury them or Adam's buried there. And then you've got people living here in this location after they've been driven out of Eden. Um, I just, I, I have problems with that. So God casts them out of this place and then all of a sudden he lets them settle back in there. I just, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. And I, I don't think that's, you know, you look at the totality of scripture, we see the justness of God. I just, I, I struggle with that. That that makes sense. I, I can, I could maybe see a little bit if they would say, this is the place where God breathed life into Adam and then took Adam and placed him in the garden, but not necessarily saying that it is the garden, um, because we know that God placed Adam in the garden, but perhaps, you know, you could, you could make a better case that uh, God breathed life into him in one place and then put him in the garden, but not that the two are the same, I guess, sure. Jerusalem. Absolutely. I, I think that's an excellent point to remember as well. You know, another problem is, again, the geography of it all. Reading the account in Genesis 2, the two rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates, the closest the Euphrates comes to modern-day Israel is at least 300 miles. So, you know, certainly ice ages, volcanic activity, geological activity, you know, things like that happen, but that's quite a stretch that, you know, 300 miles, that's, that's, I don't think rivers change course that much. (laughs) Now, and, you know, you fly over the Mississippi River and you can see where it's changed course, right? But I mean, that, that's a long way. I mean, that's like from here, that's from like here to Galveston, 300 miles that the river, which that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. You know, so that that is, and we're we're in the Dallas area, so it's from Dallas to Galveston, Texas. Uh, sorry about that. I didn't mean to leave you guys, leave our audience hanging there. <laughs> so you know, again, it's a great theory, but like some of the other theories and cultures that we discussed previously um, about the garden, it it is you know, it does have myth, it does have legend in there. You know, I, 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 again, I would say it sounds great in theory. It'd be wonderful, you know, if we could conclude, hey, you know, this, this is where it started. This is where it's all, you know, because we know when, when Christ returns and, and reigns during his millennial kingdom, it's going to be right there. Uh, it would be great. But I just, I, I struggle with that. And that's not to say that, you know, I've considered everything or I'm an expert, but it's, it seems problematic at best to me to place the location of the Garden of Eden here in the promised land. So in essence, it's an interesting theory, but probably not one we subscribe to. I would think that's a fair assessment. Well, with that being the case, I've got an even stranger location that's been put forth. All right, Brad, you ready for this one? Can't wait. The North Pole. The North Pole as the Garden of Eden. Are your sleigh bells ringing? Well, that's a... Uh, maybe not. But, but, <laughs> it actually does have some... Uh, some uh, logic behind it on there, but but this one you'll have to stick with me. You'll have to to walk with me uh, through this because it it does. It seems a little bit out there. The North Pole, great distance here from the Tigris and Euphrates River that run through the Fertile Crescent. So makes you wonder how in the world did this come about? Uh, and it and it really starts with this idea that Eden sits at the top of the world. Uh, in essence, that Eden is at the pinnacle of the earth, and it was from this place that God sent out water to provide life to the whole of the planet. And so they believed that the waters of Eden ultimately went underground and then appeared again in their respective places. The Tigris, the Euphrates, the Nile, which was the, the Gihon, and the Ganges, which is the Pishon. Uh, those are the at least the four most popular names that, that pop up in this theory. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, he held to that identification. Uh, and in that explanation, the land of Cush is Ethiopia, and India then is the, the land of Havilah. Um, but other rivers have been suggested with this too. The Danube in Europe actually was another popular candidate. But ultimately, it comes down to the idea that Eden was at the top of the world and from this spot, God watered the earth. Well, you know, and that's, you know, as far out as it seems, you know, there is archaeological evidence that at one time, the climate there before the Ice Age was more temperate, more like Southern Europe. And so, I mean, it's maybe not out there too far, right? <laughs> it is. And, 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 and it gets interesting how it wound up, though, in the north rather than the east, because originally, I mean, if we know 
as Moses is describing, writing in the wilderness. So we're dealing with either the uh, the Sinai Peninsula, right, or, or kind of some of the western portions of, of Saudi Arabia here, that it's in the east, right? He says it's in the east. And, and that, that designation of the east and Eden being at the top of the world, it really led to maps being drawn where the east was at the top of the map. In other words, the east stood at the top of the page because Eden was to sit at the top of the world. And Eden, in a lot of maps, even through the Middle Ages, was included on these these old maps. They would they would mark Eden as somewhere in the east. And if you think about it, to the east being really the top of the world, where does the sun rise? In the east. And from from the top down then, God showers the earth with light and warmth. Not only water, but light and warmth. And and if you think about the east being at the top, you can actually go to scripture on this one. This one actually has a little bit deeper background. In Psalm 89, 12, this is what we read. The north and the south, you created them. But the actual translation in the Hebrew is a little bit different. It is referring to the south, but the actual words are the north and the right, you have created them. And if the north is on your left and the south is on your right, you're oriented then to the east, the place of the sun's rising. And so that's what led really to this belief that, that Eden was at the top of the world, but, but the top of the world was to the east. But it changed. Eventually, it all changed because of cartography. Uh, they started to put north at the top of the map for two reasons. It put things in line with the pole star that, that was used to direct, now kind of known as the North Star, as well as compass alignment. But with the North now being at the top, it really was just an all a matter of perspective. If the North now is at the top, that twisted in direction led some in the, in the Middle Ages and beyond just to assume that the North Pole then must be the place of Eden. It's going up. East is no longer up, but this is up. And, and the greatest proponent probably of this idea in modern times is a man by the name of Dr. William Warren. And, and this isn't just some guy that has a lot of time on his hands. Uh, this, is, this is a man who was president of Boston University. He was a member of the American Oriental Society. There's no slouch here. He was a respected academic, and he wrote a book entitled Paradise Found, The Cradle of the Human Race at the North Pole. And I'm holding this book in, in my hands. I, I look at a lot of stuff online, but it's kind of nice uh, to hold the book in your hand. I was excited about getting this. Ordered it off of Amazon, originally printed in 1885. And it wasn't as interesting as I thought, although it contained some neat things, because he's describing geography, taxonomy, astronomy, as it was known in 1885. And so we now know a lot more. But this was this is what he argued. He said that after the creation of the earth, and, and he's thinking of the universe being created and being hot uh, in a lot of ways that secular scientists do. And he said that ultimately, if the earth is cooling down, what would be the very first places to cool? It would be the poles. And so he argued then that, that the poles would be the, the first place to support life. And then he argues that sunlight really penetrates most of the days. And we know that, that if you're around the poles, it's either light or dark for a good amount of time. And he argued and did calculations that if you count any light being active, not just pitch black darkness, that, that it's light for most of the year. So therefore, it's a place of, of light. He argued that it was a temperate climate, pleasant. And if you've got the light, you've got warmth, life would have prospered. And then he also points, though, to the ancient beliefs from a lot of different cultures that the top of the world is where life came down from. But rather than associating it here with a mountain, he tells us that it came down from the poles. Very interesting. You know, and he also prescribes that the lost city of Atlantis was also located at the North Pole as well. And, you know, and I, there's, there's some, I don't want to say evidence, but Fossil evidence certainly indicates that there, you know, it was a different climate, like we mentioned a bit ago. And, you know, it, it's it's out there, but it may not be as crazy as we think it is. 
you know, it's quite a stretch to assume that the the water went under underground all the way down to, you know, where we think of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. I mean, that's thousands of miles, is it not? That's a long way to go. But, you know, it's 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 a very interesting theory. I'll say that. Got a very it does have a very logical mind. I mean, so it's interesting the theory, even though the book in and of itself delves way too deep sometimes in into trying to prove the point. And what he did not grasp, though, that I think is the fatal flaw here, one that he could have grasped would have been that East tended to be what was viewed as up in the the ancient times. He could have grasped that, but what he couldn't have grasped was the fact that there is no continent underneath the North Pole. There, there's ice and there's water, and he argues that there was a great continent that sat there and and at this point, we probably should dismiss him. However, I'm going to give him a little bit of credit here. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to take his idea and twist it just a little bit. We've already talked about about direction being a matter of perspective. Could east be up? Uh, well, north is considered up now, but but the Earth floats in space. And, and who are we to say then what's up and down? Could it be that he was right about the continent, but at the wrong pole? Antarctica is a huge continent, and we have no idea what lay, lies beneath the ice. Could the idea be right? And here, lay Eden. You know, if you think for just a moment about our compasses, they, they point north, right? Sure. To the what we call the magnetic north pole. But what we don't realize is that magnets repel like-sided attraction, right? So, in essence, the, the north part of that compass really is the same as the south. It points to the opposite. In reality, the magnetic North Pole is in the south, and the South Pole is in the north. So could it be that, that God preserved Eden somewhere underneath the ice, a continent still present, but hidden from human access? Wow. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's a matter of perspective. Don't a lot of the people and the cultures living in the Southern Hemisphere actually believe that they are on top and we're on the bottom? I think I've heard that somewhere. It may not be factual, but I... Yeah, all a matter of perspective on what we want to count as up. The Earth is a sphere, and unless we orient the universe and, and say this is up and down, uh, it's really kind of just human perspective to, to name what is up and what is down. Very interesting. So it, it's an interesting theory. I, I still think one that's a little far out there, but if you're going to argue for an entire region, a country of Eden in which the garden would have sat... I guess you could argue that God froze it. God preserved it somehow underneath the ice, if if you'd like to go in that direction. It's got some merits to it. Uh, I don't think it has the, the greatest of merits to it, but it's an inter interesting possibility. But we still got two more to go. All right, here's another theory. And from a geographical sense, this probably makes more sense than the location of the Garden of Eden being located in the Promised Land, Jerusalem, Israel, or maybe, you know, maybe the North Pole, too. Or Antarctica. Or Antarctica. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, with all due respect to the North Pole, it may sound outlandish at first, but the but Dr. Warren, I mean, he he laid out his arguments thoughtfully. You know, it wasn't just like he didn't just throw it out there, hey, the North Pole, and then just leave it at that. All four hundred pages of his argument. <laughs> well, he was he was very thorough. We'll give him that. That he was. So our next one places our next theory would place the the Garden of God in the Persian Gulf, basically ancient Mesopotamia, uh, the Fertile Crescent, what we would refer as Iraq, Kuwait today. You know, this would prescribe that it would be somewhere in the east, uh, depending on your positioning of location, uh, south of where the Tigris and Euphrates can join to flow into the Persian Gulf. You know, a lot of the area where we know the northern area of the Persian Gulf today was dry back in this time period as well. So it, this location would, in essence, put Eden near the head of the Persian Gulf. And, you know, if you if you play with it as we think of geography today, it would still be located in the east um, if you can find the other two rivers. Certainly we know where the Tigris and the Euphrates are. And John Calvin, actually, I don't know that he necessarily prescribed to this theory, but he did kind of have a, uh, a thought of where the other two rivers were located outside of the Tigris and Euphrates. As a matter of fact, in his commentary on Genesis, he actually has drawn a map of, of where he thought Eden was, which is in the location you're going to talk about, where he has the Tigris and Euphrates joining together 
uh, around where Babylon was, and they run together for a while, but then they split again before flowing into the Persian Gulf. And he had then the the upper two arms and the lower two arms as as the four rivers. So, so you're right. There's a lot of uh, credence to this theory. Absolutely. And you know, you t- you look at a map today, you see where they join and go into the Persian Gulf. I believe this is known as the Shat Al Arab today. It's where they join, they go together, but then. You know, like like Pastor Eric said, um, the other two rivers were there, and this this where they were now is covered by the Persian Gulf. So this, from a geographical sense, this probably makes a lot more sense. Um, you can you can certainly tie this to the account written in Genesis two by Moses better than that we discussed with with the garden being located in Jerusalem. But again, a problem with this is the location of the other two rivers, right? So where are they? What what does that mean for us? So the account in Genesis represents that all the branches basically are are downstream from the main river, from the main body of water. And this theory would suppose that two of the rivers are basically upstream. Now, the flow of the direction of rivers can certainly change. There's evidence that the direction of the flow of rivers in the Middle East has changed over the last several thousand years. I mean, it's some rivers. I mean, it happens. I think it may be uh, even here in the United States, a river has changed course after an earthquake. So it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Also, an interesting thing to note is, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago, the Tigris and Euphrates, I think we, we did touch on this, they entered the head of the Persian Gulf through separate channels. Um, and certainly this would help in that the tides would extend up the head of the Gulf and the current of all the streams would be turned down. And I'm starting con- to confuse even myself, but uh, point being, could certainly certainly happen. All right. So, you know, point being here is, you know, what what happens with, you know, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, this main river. Well, this river could be represented by the Persian Gulf itself. And what's interesting is the Babylonians actually called what we would call the Persian Gulf today a river. Um, so that's not a far stretch to assume that at the time of the writing of Genesis, the Persian Gulf was known as a river, at least it was to the predecessors and ancestors of the Babylonians. Um, you know, and if you, if that's, that was a river, then can we assume that the Sumerians and the Chaldees also thought that that was a river? I think that's probably a fair assumption, right? All right. So in ancient Mesopotamian literature, you have the land of Dilmun, the most celebrated example of the garden of where the deity would dwell. You know, it's described in the Sumerian myth called Enki and Ninersog. The land is watered by the waters of abundance from the earth, which gush forth to fertilize the land. So this, you know, I think this theory has a lot more weight than you know, just from a geographical sense, then does Jerusalem and the North Pole. The geography seems to match up. And then you also see these legends and myths from some of these ancient civilizations placing this garden where the deity dwelled, where it has a lot of the characteristics of Eden in this fertile crescent region, if you will. And and Dilman, the kingdom, was was a real place. Um, many associate it with an island that sits in the Persian Gulf, but also perhaps with Bahrain. And so, in essence, the places described in these ancient myths, where they're describing a region like a paradise, is around the Persian Gulf. Certainly. And, you know, again, this 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 theory, I think, uh, holds a lot of weight. But what about the other two rivers, the Gihon and the Pishon? So some more modern theories expand on this by saying that the Gihon and the Pishon are represented by the modern-day Karum and Kirka rivers that actually flow into the Shat al-Arab from the east. Could that be what the Bible's talking about? We don't know. Could it be that these two rivers may be dried up over time? That certainly happened, as we see the Euphrates River has actually dried significantly over over the past thousand, several thousand years. The, the fact of the matter is we just, we cannot say with certainty, in my opinion, what what these two rivers would have been. And those are good guesses because you're right. I mean, if the location is here, then the question just becomes what channels may have existed and perhaps what, what rivers flowed in the past, trying to make some connections. But there were rivers around this area uh, in the Persian Gulf years ago. 
And with that, we come to our final candidate, which is my favorite candidate. And this takes us to a place called Karaka Dog. Uh, K-A-R-A-C-A, and then second word, D-A-G. Do not know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a Turkish word. Uh, but Karaka Dog. And what this is, uh, this goes back really to the geography in Genesis and tries to locate the fountainhead, the spring from which the four rivers would flow. And of the two rivers that we can identify, we can go back into the mountains of eastern Turkey and western Armenia. And it's here that, that we're going to look for the rivers. Now, there's no doubt that, that rivers can change course over time. We've already mentioned that. So a better way to look for the source of the four rivers is to expand our search out from the river banks to the water basins in which they run, the, the watershed of the area. In essence, trying to trace each, uh, each water basin back to the place where it's fed. Because the river's course may change, but it's still going to exist within the same water basin. And if you trace back the Tigris and Euphrates and, and the water sources that feed into them, you come to a place called Karaka Dag. It's a shield volcano in southeastern Turkey. And, and when you get here, you begin to find a number of interesting facts that start to add up. Firstly, the plain that exists on top of Karaka Dag is over a volcanic field that would have warmed the area. In essence, the heat below... Uh, would have not only warmed the area, but it would have also caused the water flowing underneath to, to perhaps bubble up through the silt and the sand, purifying it and pushing it out into springs. And in fact, there, there are several springs that you can still find on the south side of Karaka Dog. And so, in essence, you've got both a warm climate in which Adam and Eve would live, and you have fresh water, both descriptions of Eden. But the question then becomes, well, what of fruitfulness? Well, the soil of Karaka Dog, even today, is rich. Organic compounds are found in the dirt. And up till about 50 years ago, because of, of human activity, the area used to be richly forested. Now, if you add these together, the, the climate, the, the springs, the richness of the land, you've got a lot of pluses for Karaka Dog being the site. But adding a fourth in here, its mountainous location also seems to fit the description. Because when we see the description of Eden, it's not only described in Genesis 2. We can also see the language concerning Eden mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. And there's a passage where, where a prophecy is given to the king of Tyre, where God is going to judge him, but a parallel is made with what this king has done to really the, the fall of Satan as, as well as the corruption that took place in the Garden of Eden. And so in Ezekiel 28, 13 through 14, we read this description of Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. Sounds a little bit like a volcano. And so here you've got a, a shield volcano that's rich in its soil that would have provided very fertile uh, growth. You have springs that run out of the, the area, uh, and indeed, you've got a warm climate for Adam and Eve to live in. And you've also got great proximity to the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates River in this area as well. Very close. Very close. It is. And, and water that, that comes off of this, this mountain uh, will flow into both of those rivers eventually. But the question is, well, what of the other two rivers then? Can we find the, the Pishon and the Gihon? Well, the Gihon makes a little bit more sense. So we, we could perhaps line that up with the Kabur River, K-H-A-B-U-R, Kabur River, that comes down from the slopes. And, and this is the one that would run into Cush, uh, which, although we've said, can be identified with Ethiopia. It can also refer to the Kassite people who lived to the southeast of Karaka Dog. 
And that would then just leave the Pishon to be identified. And, and we know that it ran through the land of Havilah. And this is most likely a land that was named after one of two people in Scripture that bore that name. In essence, really, there could have been two lands of Havilah. And perhaps one of these describes the surrounding region in Turkey, which, if we note, contains some of the largest stone reserves in the world, with what being among them? Onyx. And then on top of all this for the region, you have Ezekiel 27.13 that reads this, Haran, Canaan, Eden, traders of Sheba, Asher, and Kilmod traded with you. And this is referring to the king of Tyre and the people with whom he traded. And do you want to know where Haran is located? Ancient Haran was located close to Karagadog in southern Turkey. And who is also in that region? The people of Eden, we're told. But it gets even better from, from this. Do you want to know where the earliest signs of agriculture in the world are found? The world's most ancient grain, uh, which is icorn wheat, I think is the way you pronounce it. And where was this first cultivated? Meaning wheat was not growing in the wild, but rather the seeds were taken, they were planted, and they were cultivated to be able to grow in, in fields. And where then is this located? The most ancient grain on the slopes of Karakadog. In other words, upon leaving Eden, this is where the first farming and cultivation of grain ever took place. From growing wild to being farmed, it's right here. Well, you know, and, and to back up just a little bit, also uh, Turkey is, and, and stretching back to ancient times, has also been a great exporter of gold. And so that, that also adds credence to this as well. Is in, in the land of Havilah, which, again, we don't have a solid source, but, again, we know of the descendants. And, and indeed, it could be the region that's being described. And then there's one final piece to the puzzle, and, and this to me is amazing. Around 18 miles away from Karakadog, you find what is most likely the oldest temple known in existence. In essence, perhaps the first place of worship. And it's called Gobekli Tepe. It sits atop a hill, and it contains megalithic stones, many carved with the images of animals. Perhaps, just perhaps, it's a look back to Eden and Adam's naming of the animals, a reflection, perhaps, on what was lost, a looking back to when they held paradise, built on top of a hill, an enclosed space, with many animals depicted. Karakadog is a good candidate for Eden, and maybe it is the very ground upon which Eden once sat. Could it have been that the garden itself maybe was removed by God, but the ground upon which it stood still sits there? So what are we to make of this? Can Eden ever be found for certain? I would answer yes, but I think when we find it, it's not going to be the old one. So where do we go from here? Well, Eden does, or at least a reference to it, make a reappearance in Scripture at a time of the end, right? So, you know, as we kind of teased, you know, what is eternity going to be like? You know, we can look back to Eden. And when we say that, we're looking ahead in Scripture. And there's a reference to this time in the book of Revelation. Isn't I've got it right here. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, has very similar imagery to what we find at the beginning of, of Scripture. Uh, the verses read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So Eden regained. Eden returns. 
But how do we get back into Eden? Well, well, that really comes back to the tree of life as well. But, but not the tree of life that was in Eden. Scripture points us to another tree on which life is presented to us. But this tree is the cross of Christ. The very place where Jesus died to pay for the sins of the world. It is by his sacrifice that we can be forgiven and redeemed. And by him, then, the way to the Father is reopened. And so one day we will enter gates if we belong to Christ, not of Eden, but the gates of the new world that God will form. Eden's been lost, but it's also been found. You know, and what's amazing here is everything that mankind, when we when we initially rebelled against God, and I say we because we all have rebelled against God. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's not just Adam. We all, I mean, you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't have done any better than Adam. I mean, you know. Yeah, none of us would. Uh, but everything that mankind tore down, you see Christ reconstruct, if you will. What's, what, how amazing is that? You know, and we touched on this, that... You know, God did not give up on us. God did not give up on humanity, if you will, when they rebelled against him. And he would have been just and, and rightfully to destroy Adam and Eve right there on the spot. But he didn't. He started making a way. and A remarkable testament to his love and mercy and grace. Indeed. You know, through many heartaches, if you will, for God. I mean, it's, you know, you, you see points in Scripture where he's grieved at what his creation has done to him, he didn't give up on us. And, you know, you also see that God is a God of his word. When he promises to Eve that her offspring will crush the head of the serpent, I mean, think of how many times mankind disappointed him in the interim to that and still disappoint him to this day. But he made that way for us to be reconciled to him, to have life eternal and reconciliation with him. And that's, that's just truly remarkable. From Adam and Eve leaving in the in the garments of animal skin that God gave them to cover their shame, we now can walk back because we're covered by the blood of Christ. And, and that is the perfect sacrifice that covers us that we can now be reconciled to God. And, and Scripture makes this, this connection very clear, right? Where we're uh, our first forefather. In Adam, we all fell, the Bible said. But in the second Adam... In Christ, we can all be raised if we repent and believe. Remarkable. And that's where the story comes to a good ending. Uh, last episode, we saw the, the terrible tragedy that unfolded within the garden. But by another tree of life, we're invited into an eternal life with, with God, where paradise will be restored and, and I'd like to end today maybe just with a passage from John Milton's Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost, because in that, that work, it expresses both the loss that Adam experienced as well as the hope to which he was to look. At the very end of this, this work by Milton, it, you see an angel informing Adam of what is to come in the future. And he walks through the story of the Old Testament, the story of Christ, and he tells Adam to hold out hope for the return of Christ, that paradise lost will be paradise regained. And this is the ending to that work. Speaking of Adam and Eve, they, looking back, all the eastern side beheld of paradise, so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms, some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. <laughs>